and they go that day in the small buses to visit the tomb where the body of Jesus was laid. It's not very large, so you queue up, and he waits his turn anxiously with his camera. He goes in and comes out just a few seconds later, turning to the other people in the queue and says, there's nobody in there. (laughs) Some people don't know the end of the Easter story. But it's this, Jesus, dead on a cross and laid in a tomb, is raised to life by the power of God. That's the reason the stone is rolled away, that's the reason the tomb is empty, that's the reason no one is in there. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the climax of the gospel stories, all the gospels we've read Luke's this morning. But the resurrection of Jesus isn't just the climax of the gospel stories, it's also the climax of the faith of the Christian church. The faith of the early apostles, the faith of the church right down to today and around the world, and if you listen very carefully, even up to heaven. So this morning, I want us briefly to look at the Corinthians reading where Paul is talking to a group of Christians who, like us, live in a culture of umpteen different faiths and none, with very many people completely disbelieving and dismissing the idea, the very idea that anyone can be raised from the dead. And we're in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. You've heard it read. If you want to open it up, just keep your eye on it. Please do. Paul's been tackling some of the biggest questions of life. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, the three chapters before this one, he's addressed in turn questions like, what is love? What is proper spirituality? And now in chapter 15, he goes for the biggie of all biggies. Where, if anywhere, do we go when we die? Paul starts with a common belief then as now and addresses those people who say in response to that question, well, you go nowhere. You die, we all will, and that's it, the end. In which case, says Paul, if this gloomy belief is right, then bodies aren't raised from the dead, and therefore Jesus Christ can't have been raised from the dead, which means putting any faith or hope in Jesus Christ is completely pointless. And consequently, any notion that the risen Jesus can promise eternal life to his followers, to you and me, is ridiculous. Which leads us to the beginning of the text that we started with this morning. If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We, of all people, are most to be pitied. We're deluded. We're wrong. And then comes that wonderful word Paul uses so effectively in his letters. But. But in fact, he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And we move from gloomy what-ifs of this kind of prognostication of if this is all wrong to 
historical certainties because remember Paul has met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and therefore the but makes all the difference in the world because our hope of being raised is wholly utterly completely based in the notion of Jesus being raised Nothing else, nothing left. And having followed the logical interpretations of Jesus not being raised, what Paul then goes and does in this passage is lay out the implications of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. And they're good news. Because Jesus' resurrection is actually God's declaration of ultimate good news to the whole of humanity. First, Paul uses this phrase we find several times in Scripture and not just in his letters. Christ's resurrection, he says, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This rather quaint way of saying, have died. Where do we come across that phrase, first fruits, elsewhere in the Scriptures? Yeah, I'm letting you think, you know, you haven't got up yet. Very often it is, isn't it, in relation to those ancient Jewish laws of offering and particularly where the harvest is gathered and somebody who has received a big harvest then offers the first fruits of the harvest in an offering to the Lord. In other words, says Paul, and you can almost sense his excitement, the resurrection of Jesus is the first installment of an abundant harvest of resurrection. To be sure, others have been revived from the dead. I mean, Jesus revived Lazarus. But this body, this new body, this resurrection body, holds immortality in it. Jesus' first fruits resurrection is sacred and special, but it's not unique. The resurrection body is the first, says Paul, but it won't be the last. Because after the first fruits comes the harvest, and the harvest of resurrection life is the gift of God in Christ to all his followers. I remember a Methodist preacher, he was a UN preacher telling me of the fact that he was with his aged parents at the point of the death of his mother. And his father sat in the room and held his mother's hands as she slipped away and her son was looking on. And the last thing she said to her husband was, I'll see you. And he quietly replied to her, I'll be there. You see, says Paul, the fact is that Christ has been risen from the dead. And then Paul goes on to contrast Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the true man. And we've got to remember our Old Testament a bit, just for a moment. We've got to remember that God created all things good and placed Adam and Eve, the first humans, in a paradise. And they wreck it. 
And they're thrown out of the garden because of their disobedience and sin comes into the world. And God, in that Genesis story, declares to them the consequences of their disobedience. Alongside the pain of childbearing, and by implication, therefore, there wasn't birth, uh, pain in childbearing till that point. You will have pain. Alongside the new need now to toil hard for what you eat and what you grow, and by implication, presumably everything before that was gift. Then this. Alongside these, you shall return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you were dust, and to dust you will return. The implication being here between Genesis and 1 Corinthians, that mortality, death itself, enters the world at the point of sin, but was not the original intention of the creator of the paradise. It's a fruit of what happened. So in other words, what Paul's saying here is that Jesus' resurrection, the first fruits, reverses the dismal inevitability that humanity from Adam and Eve onwards will decay and die, and that's the end of it. Death came through a human being, writes Paul. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a human being. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. What is it we say? There's nothing more certain than death and taxes. We will all die. The resurrection faith that we're celebrating this morning is not a postponement of the inevitable. But the Christian faith declares just as certainly that all will be made alive in Christ. Christ has a resurrection body, and so will we who follow him. If you go to that lovely island off the coast of Scotland, Iona, famous for its Celtic heritage, there's a small graveyard there next to the small monastery overlooking the beautiful landscape and the sea. And when I went there... The first time I noticed as I wandered around the graveyard a lovely inscription on one gravestone. It reads this. Here lies all that can be buried of Bruce Kendrick. You see, the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead and we will be raised with him. Hallelujah. This resurrection hope, this strong hope, this real faith sustains us when we're stood in hospice rooms and looking on our televisions. Though we continue to live in a world of terror and destruction and illness and violence, the resurrection and its promise sustain us. In 2016, we live, if you like, in an in-between time, a time between the historic resurrection of Jesus and the end. I mean the end. 
The time when Jesus Christ and those belong to him are made alive and he hands over the kingdom of God after he has put all God's enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he reigns over all. In the wake of the Russian Revolution, Bukharin, a famous orator, was co-opted by the authorities to speak at huge anti-God rallies. There was a big rally in Kiev where hundreds of people were forced by the new authorities to attend. And it followed the normal pattern. For over an hour, the speaker, the eloquent speaker, brought to bear all the artillery of argument and abuse and ridicule upon the Christian faith until it seemed to any listener like any aspect of Christian faith was in ruins. And the chairman went to the microphone and asked if anyone had any questions. And after a long moment, an old man dressed in the robes of an orthodox priest walked slowly to the front climbed slowly onto the platform and standing next to the great speaker Bukharin and the committee members raised his arms and in a loud clear voice gave the ancient Easter greeting. Christ is risen and the whole assembly rose to its feet and said what? You're still an hour out. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. So we sing. See what a morning. <laughs>